0: Hey, guess what, Rockheads? Progress Telerik wants to send someone to Build. So they're having a contest. Step one is to sign up and learn about the new innovative modern UI tools they'll be announcing at Build. By registering, you'll be entered to win a full conference pass to Microsoft Build plus a $500 travel stipend. They're also giving away three Telerik DevCraft UI licenses. And for .NET Rocks listeners, They'll also be giving away a Telerik DevCraft UI license every week. All you have to do is register at buildcontest.pwop.me. That's buildcontest.pwop.me. Progress offers the leading platform for developing and deploying mission-critical business applications. The creator of the award-winning Telerik, .NET, and Kendo UI, JavaScript, user interface components and controls, reporting solutions, and productivity tools, Progress offers all the tools developers need to build high-performant, modern apps with outstanding UI. Go now to buildcontest.pop.me and sign up to win. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Back for another hour of y goodness. And uh, Kathy O'Neill is here. We're going to be talking to her in a minute. How are you, my friend? You're getting all pumped up for uh, Orlando, aren't you? When well, I say that loosely. <laughs> it's well, not yeah. Orlando you're
1: getting excited about. It's Dev Intersection. Now, to be clear, at this particular moment when this show publishes, will the show will have just ended. In fact, I will be flying to Russia. Right. These are
0: the joys of doing everything
1: a month of ahead time of time. time shifting, yeah. But it's kind of, you know, crazy random thing because of my work with the Vatican last year. Yeah. I ended up working with a group in Yakutsk, Siberia. Wow. So, yeah, if you're listening to this on publication day, I am in the air on my way to Yakutsk. And the only reason you know where that is, is you played Risk yeah that's right yeah (laughs) i loved risk but it's the biggest city in siberia Mm. uh it'll be there in april so it'll only be zero degrees but they hit a low this winter of negative 88. wow that's the all-time coldest measured temperature i think so
0: yeah so let's
1: go there so when they
0: threatened to ship you to siberia in world war ii they weren't kidding they weren't kidding it's true yeah all right well let's roll the crazy music for better know framework awesome All right, dude, what do you got? All right, so this is show 1530. So if you go to Mm -hmm. 1530.pwop.me, I think it was Joel Hewlin who um, told us about this. This is an SVG animated login avatar. What? Yeah, so you have a login, right, and your email and password and login, your basic web screen. Right. And so this guy animated this Yeti or Abominable Snowman to watch you As you type and and sort of just follow your text with his eyes,
1: and he covers his eyes when you type your (laughs) password. Covers his (laughs) eyes when you type your password. Really cool. Uh, It's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Software doesn't have to be dull, right? It just doesn't. That's great. What a good idea.
0: (laughs) <laughs> like he's amazed when you're typing your email address and he covers his eyes when you type your password. All right, and right well, It anyway. looks like
1: the eyes actually track. So if you backspace, you'd go back. That's yeah.
0: not very creepy. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, it's pretty much just a location on the screen, you yeah, know? Yeah, no uh, question. And that uh, was made by one Darren Seneff at D-S-E-N-N-E-F-F. Sorry, Darren, if I butchered your name,
1: but there you go. He's got a site called The Dazzling D-Man. Awesome. Yeah. So, clearly check it out because he's very cool. Have a good time with that. And uh, who's Love talking it. to us today, Richard? Uh I grabbed a comment off of show 1519, which we did back in February of 2018 with Kesha Williams. It's one of our NDC shows. Yeah. We were talking about Amazon machine learning. Although, if you remember that conversation, we really dove deeply into bias right that whole the whole conversation around machine learning and how your own biases are reflected in how you select data and what the effect it has on learning and that that bias actually gets amplified by machine learning right right and got a lot of comments on these shows people really thinking about it but this particular comment comes from nick azazarian and i hope i pronounced your name correctly because it had entirely too many consonants in it uh who said Kathy O'Neill, that's at mathbabe.org, mm-hmm. has written a book called Weapons of Math Destruction that goes <laughs> into the bias that is implicit in any algorithm, whether learned by a machine or not. She is the was a host on the Slate Money podcast, but has moved on from there. I think she'd make an excellent guest. Now, I thought, I've never heard of this book. So I went to immediately to Amazon to buy it, found out I bought it Two months ago. ah, (laughs) It's sitting on my Kindle. It's in the reading queue. So I haven't read it yet, but it's already in position to to, uh, be read. Um, Nick goes on to say, regarding machine learning policies, I cannot envision a world where it's not going to happen. Like machine learning is absolutely inevitable. So let's not work towards that goal, stopping it, but rather work towards the goal of using machine learning to determine why. crime is going to be committed and eliminate that cause imagine the drop in crime if poverty was no longer an issue and Mm. even without machine learning we've got pretty good data that shows that the primary driver of crime is poverty and solving that will go a long way to solving an awful lot of crime but i'm all for better studies and more uh, more effectiveness yeah so nick um you got your wish here comes the show yep so thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. Uh, he's at
0: Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And uh, send us a tweet. We add them up and uh, throw them away. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I got nothing today. (laughs) We use them as a login script. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. Uh, Let's introduce Kathy. Kathy O'Neill earned a PhD in math from Harvard, was a postdoc at the MIT math department and a prof at Barnard College, where she published a number of research papers in arithmetic algebraic geometry. She then switched over to the private sector, working as a quant for the hedge fund DE Shaw in the middle of the credit crisis, and then for Risk Metrics. A risk software company that assesses risk for the holdings of hedge funds and banks. She left finance in 2011 and started working as a data scientist in the New York startup scene, building models that predicted people's purchases and clicks. She wrote Doing Data Science in 2013 and launched the LEAD program, that's L E D E, in data journalism at Columbia in 2014. Kathy is a regular contributor to Bloomberg View and wrote the book Weapons of Math Destruction, as Richard has already said, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. She recently founded Orca. How do you say that? I just say Orca. Orca, Mm -hmm. O-R-C-A-A, an algorithmic auditing company. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I don't know why, but every time we have, like, you know, math PhDs on the show. I just, I don't know. I'm in awe. Maybe because I struggled so much with it in school.
2: We are, we are going to go there. We're going to go deep.
0: Good, good. Tell me why I'm so afraid of you.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, instead of telling you why I'm so you're so afraid of me, I'm going to tell you how I can take advantage of you because of your ah, fear. Ah, even better. <laughs> Which is really kind of the point of the whole big data hype thing, where we're like, oh, it's an algorithm. Therefore, it's mathematics. Therefore, you can't ask any questions. Therefore, whatever we do with this algorithm uh, is beyond reach and unaccountable. That is kind of the short version of my book. Now you don't have to read it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah okay so
0: so because we think things are mathematical we think they're pure we think they're harmless we think all of those things that Objective. go with yeah well the yeah. thing is
2: about i mean the irony is that you know math really is kind of pure mm-hmm. math 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 like math with axioms and right. logical deductions and you know i mean i can talk about proof as a social construct etc cetera, etc cetera, but the, the truth is we do in mathematics we do sort of spend a lot of time being careful about our assumptions and uh, careful about our logical reasoning. Um,
0: You can say it's absolute, but just because it's absolute doesn't mean it's going to have any kind of moral connotation that comes with it or not. Uh, It's can be absolutely awesome or absolutely evil.
2: Right. I mean, I think most, most of the time math is just simply art. You know, it's just beautiful. That's why we do it. Um, But I would, I would say that algorithms like, AI, big data algorithms, they are not math, period. They're just simply not math. That's just a, it's a mischaracterization. If, Hmm. if any, if anything, they're science, but they're not science yet either. And so like, you could say that my, my current, my current sort of obsession is to put the science into data science. It's to say like, if Hmm. we're going to do this, let's do it right. Let's put science right.
1: You know, I'm immediately reminded that at XKCD, hi Randall. Uh we had him on the show ages ago and I'm still a huge fan. Me too. Uh of he did a comic called Purity and it just sort of and it is sort of listing these different sciences, you know, sociologists and the psychologists saying sociology is applied psychology and the biologist says psychology is just applied biology and so forth. And all the way way over on the right it says is mathematicians. Oh hey, I didn't see you guys all the way over there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean ma- well yes, M- mathematics is 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 just is plain art. That's my current thinking about it. Um, as somebody who did it for a long time and did not know what I was doing while I was doing it, and then I left and said, "Oh, now I know what I'm doing because I'm not doing it anymore." Um, I was doing something that was beautiful, but probably not totally relevant. <laughs> yeah. And, and I I left b- worked to, in in a hedge fund and realized I was doing something that's very relevant, but not not only uh, slightly less beautiful, but also possibly relevant in a bad way, like yeah, which right. never occurred to me. Like I was like, oh wait, impact doesn't necessarily mean good impact. Like I wanted to have more impact, but I didn't really think through what that might look like. Um. Anyway, can I, can we go back? I, how freewheeling is this conversation? Just, you exactly? drive it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it. Please fly.
1: I'm, I'm not going to let you walk away from the whole threatens democracy thing either, because oh, boy, it good. seems good. like democracy is threatened a lot these days.
2: Sure is. Sure is. Um, but I want to start with that the reader comment about about crime because yes. I, I'm i not with that person. I mean, I'm glad that they recommended my book. Thank you. Thank you for recommending my <laughs> <the> book. <laughs> but d- really, poverty causes crime? I would say it very, very differently. I, I, okay. I would and say – Okay, and
1: I said that. That's not what Kesha said. Kesha was talking about a machine learning algorithm she'd used that was using visual tracking in certain parts of a city that was identifying crime-like behaviors before the crime was actually committed to sort of position police officers in advance. But and this is where the bias came in is that immediately the machine learning tended to uh, – the vision algorithms tended towards identifying potential crime sites when people were not white.
2: Mm, Like that mm -hmm. bias
1: showed up immediately in its behavior.
2: Sure. Sure. Okay. That, that is definitely a good example. Um, but I just want to make it clear that like, you know, we are, and this is a very important, having nothing to do with algorithms per se, but it will be relevant to our conversation. Like we humans are the ones that define what crime is.
1: Sure. Interesting point.
2: So if, if we define crime to be things that poor people do, then it's a tautology to say that poverty causes crime, and that is essentially what we've done. We've we've said like things like peeing in public are crimes because right, right. people don't have access to bathrooms. Um, you know, so I just want to make the point that like we're the ones who define crime. We're the ones who define which data gets collected, which gets ignored. Mm-hmm. We're also mm-hmm. the ones that define how police actually practice their job of finding crime. And um, if you look at statistics like who gets arrested for crimes you'll see that the police practice of you know arresting five times as many blacks for smoking pot as whites even though whites and blacks smoke pot at the same rate right right you'll you'll be like whoa what is going on here this is um you know I'm just well, making and it the and point there was that, an like,
1: interesting aspect of what Kesha was talking about, that when a piece of software tells a police officer, go to this intersection, I think there's a potential crime taking place. What do you think his mental state is?
2: What do you think whose mental state is?
1: Sorry, The police officer's mental state, when being prompted by software to go looking for a crime in a location. It's uh, kind of a yeah. self-fulfilling prophecy.
2: Yes, of course it is. Of course it is. But like, just to be clear, that's... That's again, not new, right? we've been sure. we've been in like living through decades of uh, broken windows policing where mm-hmm. like the actual sort of stated goal was to nab people for nonviolent, low-level nuisance crimes because the the thinking was the theory was that it would avoid like later, larger, more violent crimes right, so it was right. it was a stated goal to arrest people because they're poor and black for loitering.
1: Right. Like the, you yeah. again, you get this right. idea of we defined what crime was to be things yep. we didn't like, not yeah. necessarily things that are dangerous to the well-being of society. Mm.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, so that's I just wanted to throw that in. But yeah, I mean, and then the, the, then what happens is a feedback loop. Right. So we mm-hmm. have um, the police practice, the historical police practice um, informing the data collection because we don't collect crime data. We collect arrest data. Right. Um, and then the arrest data is plugged into what's now called predictive policing or hotspot policing, and it uses the locations of pre- previous arrests to guesstimate the locations of future crimes. It sends the police back to those same areas, and then the police look around for crimes, just to mm-hmm. your point about the, the video stuff. Mm, right? Um, I'll, I'll also make the point. And I'm sorry, I'm just like so focused on, on, on like these, these details at this point because you might have wanted to ask me general questions. No, (laughs) no, no, go with it. But like, think about where the video cameras are Mm -hmm. in a city. You know what I mean? The video cameras aren't in white neighborhoods. Let's face it, they're not, they're not in rich suburbs. They, and you would say, well, because it's too expensive to put a video camera on it every 20 feet in a rich suburb. And that's true. But I'm just making the point that like, Every every surveillance tool imaginable is in the inner cities, Um, and so if you believe self fulfilling, yes, if you believe that you're getting more likely to get arrested for a crime if you're seen by a cop or a video camera or some surveillance tool, which I think you should believe, then you'll you'll see that this kind of uh, over policing of certain poor minority neighborhoods is 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 going to be is going to continue. It's going to have a feedback loop, kind of self fulfilling prophecy aspect
1: absolutely no it makes a lot of sense and i'm glad you i appreciate you backing us up and saying you know it's always about those assumptions right Mm -hmm. that's the mark twain quote right it's not what you know it's what you know ain't so yeah Mm. and so those assumptions we made early on and just breezed by you know pull up pull them out and look at them again i love this idea of we do not measure crime stats we measure arrest stats
2: yeah Yeah, we don't have crime data i mean i like to say that and for that matter, like. Going back to my thing about putting science into data science, like, I like to, for every kind of, every kind of conundrum that I come across, you know, oh, we we wish we had crime information, but we only have arrest information. I like to think about an alternative universe where we did have what we wanted. Like, what would that look like? Right. And, I mean, if you think about how many crimes are committed in the home, um, then you'd actually need surveillance cameras everywhere like literally in every in every possible area and you would need those algorithms we were talking about that spot crime to work on white people too um and it would just it would be number one very expensive and number two very very privacy eroding yes and the costs would just simply outweigh the benefits we would just as a society be like that's not worth it like we don't care about having a complete picture of crime that much right i just wonder if we're
1: already on that path really
2: I actually don't think we are. I think we're on the path of, of getting every single crime for poor people. Right. Um, but not for, not for wealthy people.
1: We are putting I mean, cameras everywhere, though.
2: We're putting cameras. We're not putting cameras everywhere. Let's be clear. Like, if we had a hotspot of where police cameras are, that would be an interesting countermeasure to the hotspot policing, by the way. Right. Um, you know, I always like to collect data about powerful people. Because mm-hmm. most data is collected by powerful people about powerless people. I like mm-hmm. to like turn the table a little bit. Like, what would that look like?
1: So the police right. body cam,
2: the body cams. That's yeah. certainly a lot of them. But where are the police? Right. Mm-hmm. And then there, there's at airports, of course, and you know Times Square type places, like big shopping areas. But I don't know. I don't, I, I just don't think it is everywhere. I I don't think it's tending towards everywhere.
1: Yeah, it is. It is it's certainly from a policing perspective, they do have limited resources, and so they are basically I deciding where crimes are going to be committed.
2: Hmm. That's right. That's a good way of saying that. Sometimes I say predictive policing predicts the police.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Certainly telegraphs police behavior. There's no two ways about it. Right.
2: Well, think about it this way. Like if, if police really started policing um, in a sort of even way where they went, you know, just as often to the upper East side as they went to Harlem, I'm sorry for being so New York-centric, but um, you know what I mean. Um, then then the algorithm would go berserk. The algorithm would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, right. right. We never told you to go there. you know." So it, it would have to – the police would actually have to say, hey, we're going to ignore the algorithm in right. order to uh, change practices.
1: On the other hand, how do you build an algorithm without informing it of past data? Hmm.
2: Well, that's a good question. I, I would argue, um, so, I mean, we can go into that, but I would say the best example of that, which might not strike you as an algorithm, but we haven't even discussed what an algorithm is. I just, we just jumped in here. Um, the best example of that would be the blind audition and orchestras, um, example. So when they realized the orchestra people, uh, realized that they were, they had a nepotism problem. They didn't sort of acknowledge their, their sexism problem, but they were like, They were like, oh, we got a nepotism problem. We keep on hiring people who are like, you know, students of our friends. And so they introduced the curtain between the auditioner and the people listening. And, um, it got rid of nepotism as well as it, you know, it raised the number of women being brought into orchestras by a factor of five. So I would, I would argue that's an algorithm. And that is an algorithm that doesn't use historical data. It's a process. it's a process. Well, so an algorithm is just an automated process and, and an algorithm can be coded up by a computer or it could be just a human process. Right. So seeing that way, I would say that that's an example where they said, Hey, let's discard the historical data we have because it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And let's, let's venture forth with a new approach. And the approach had two elements, which I think about a lot. Well, the first one is, let's decide what quality means to us. Very, very concretely, what is quality? Right. And they decided on sound. Yeah. And then the second thing they did was, let's ignore absolutely everything else.
1: Yeah, Let's mm-hmm. eliminate everything else as an, as an input. Yes. Just worry about how it sounds.
0: We've all come to expect that distributed databases can't be both globally consistent and scalable. But what if you didn't have to make trade-offs? What if you could have a fully managed database service that's consistent, scales horizontally across data centers, and speaks SQL? Introducing Cloud Spanner, a mission-critical relational database service from Google Cloud Platform, built from the ground up and battle-tested at Google for strong consistency and high availability at a global scale. Learn more about Cloud Spanner online at g.co slash that's g.co slash get spanner. So how do you ignore all of the other inputs? And here's the, one of the analogies that I always come back to is trying to decipher confounders, right? Which is, it turns out if you look at the data, there's an association between drownings and people eating ice cream. So if you're eating ice cream, you're more likely to drown. And the number could be dramatic. doesn't really matter. But it turns out that there's a third confounder, which is good weather, summertime, right? You're, in good weather, you eat more ice cream. You're also at the beach or the the firefighter problem. So we, we notice that there's a lot of firefighters every time there's a fire. There's a lot of firefighters hanging around. So if we get rid of all the firefighters, we can reduce fires. So, and there's a third confounder, obviously, but so how do you filter those things out? It seems to me that that's where the real genius of, of, uh, algorithms and uh, can be put to use.
2: Okay. So I'm going to, you guys just asked me two different questions, so I'm going to answer the first one first, if that's okay. Sure. Um, and the, and the first one was about like, how do you get rid of extra information? Um, and I think the answer is, and the short answer is, big data algorithms do the opposite of getting rid of extra information. They hmm. accept all information, and that's one of the big reasons they get so, dis- do- so biased. Hmm. Um, it's well known that if you ask, cause, you know, lots of Harvard Business Reviews studies have shown, for example, that like, if you ask if law students to include information about <clears throat> their summer hobbies on applications for like internships in the summer, then, you know, they're, you're basically asking for cues of class and race hmm. with their name, et cetera, and their, and their gender. And, and guess what? Like if you're lower class, if you're a woman, if you're black, it works against you, even if you're just as qualified as another applicant. So extra information is known to work against you. That is generally true. Um, and, and big data you know, the promise of big data is that more information is better. So it is exactly the opposite of that. I would also argue that the first thing I said about the orchestra example, which is deciding what quality looks like, is the opposite of what we do with big data. So when we are building an algorithm in big data, a big data algorithm to decide who to hire, we'll we'll train it on historical data, and we won't know exactly what we mean by qualified. Instead, we'll use secondary characteristics of success, signals really of success, like who got raises, who got promoted, who stayed for a long time at this company. And we'll say that a successful person at this company in the past was somebody who got promoted a lot, who got a lot of raises and has stayed for a long time. And then we'll train our algorithm to say, what were the initial conditions for a person to later become successful at this company? And we'll train the algorithm on that. And then we'll apply it to our current pool of applicants and say, Who among these applicants looks like people that were successful in the past? But again, they weren't truly qualified necessarily, but they had these sort of secondary signals of success, which, of course, are then culturally defined. Who gets raises? Who gets promoted? Um, So that's where the bias gets embedded um, in the big data algorithm. So we, first of all, don't define quality. And second of all, we don't ignore other information that could be harmful.
1: The raise one's got to be particularly challenging because inevitably, you've worked with this person you have a viewpoint on them there is going to be personal bias is it i mean i guess it's one of the reasons that hr has such abstract mechanisms around raises is to try and take some of that out
2: that's right i mean look i'm not trying to say that we should discard algorithms and go back to humans because humans have bias too they have it in spades and like in the implicit bias even when they're not Aware of their own bias is a real problem, and so the idea, this promise that big data is going to get rid of that human bias, is exciting. Um, unfortunately, just the way we're doing it now doesn't happen to actually get rid of human bias. Right. It happens to embed it and codify it. Now, I'd like to go back to the confounder question that you yeah. asked second, and and it, and thank you for asking it. It's a very very important one. It's very important, and it's basically it goes straight to what I was saying earlier. Why did that person? Why did that person leave after two years? Why do women tend to leave this company after two years? It's be- right. Is it because none of those women are good at their job or is it because it's a terrible place to work for women? You right. know what I mean? It's, it's a, what you're really getting at is the concept of causality. Yes. Um, and causality is impossible to in- understand, um, just by looking at a data set. You have to perform randomized experiments. And that Agreed. goes back to my original plea that we turn this into a science. God. Like, we're calling it data science, but we don't actually perform causality experiments? What mm. What the heck? You know, we right. need to do better than that. We need to actually figure out, like, why is this happening? Is it happening for cultural reason? Is it happening because we've defined um, who deserves a raise badly? Or is it happening for some other fundamental reason that we need to explore?
0: Agreed. And the only way to do that is with randomized trials, as you said before. And at the end of this... This kind of um associative risk or uh, relative risk pulling data out of crap studies for example um, for you know to to exploit a market is rampant in in the economy I mean yeah. you see it all the time
2: and by the way I mean I don't think we've I mean I, I don't know if you guys like to just dig, 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 but like I, I don't even think we've gotten to the bottom of like what is really bad about algorithms <laughs> <laughs> because I would argue that like even really true, even really correct algorithms can still be totally evil, right? Sure. So it's not even if we understand causality and our data is clean um, or at least it's accurate, mm. like we still might be doing totally evil things with the data. so for example, like if poverty is a sign that you're not going to be a good employee. Um, and if we can, if we think about Facebook's recent patent from last week on mm. class, so it it allows, I think it's the point is to allow advertisers to advertise, uh, to segment their advertisement by class. So poor people don't get to see this rich people do type thing. Um, you know, we have an algorithm saying, well, poor people aren't expected to do well at this job. So we're not going to show them this job opening. Right.
1: You know, like that's super, <laughs> Totally super self-fulfilling. Yeah.
2: Right. Self-fulfilling and it's bad for the public and it's bad for society, but it's, it's just accurate.
1: Bad. Yeah. Just because it's accurate doesn't mean it's right. I, it, exactly. It occurred, I mean, I don't want to blame algorithms for anything. In the end, this is about people's actions based on the data they're looking at.
2: Well, I okay. So I'm going to go back to <laughs> get another thing I sure. heard before this started. Really was, oh, like algorithms are inevitable. We there's no stopping them. Why, if if we're going to give our, <laughs> if we're going to give ourselves a little bit of of a nudge in terms of our culpability here, then why are we assuming that algorithms are inevitable? Right. Like that's ridiculous.
1: Now, and I think the the commenters note was that not using machine learning isn't an option. Like that tech's going to happen. We have that's to bullshit. harness it.
2: I'm sorry. Am I allowed to say bullshit?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we can bleep it. It's yep. all right.
2: <laughs> okay. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> because the thing is, like, I mean, that's the same bullshit argument that, like, oh, uh, um, self-driving cars are inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, it's inevitable that all of our jobs will be taken over by robots. Like, no, actually, theoretically, technology can be serving humanity rather than enslaving humanity i just don't understand why assuming these these political decisions have been already made well
1: and and, you know and i don't i would not make the presumption that self-driving cars are going to enslave humanity either i do think the self-driving cars are coming and there's plenty of advantages for humanity to having them that people tend not to adopt things that hurt them they see an advantage to it and they're and they're going to want it one way or the other, right? Machine learning, without a doubt, has created competitive advantages for some businesses. The fact that that tool can also cause harm or can be looked at as responsible for harm, that's almost a separate issue. And it has to be dealt with. It's not optional. But you're not going to make machine learning go away because it has caused harm. You're going to have to insist that it doesn't cause harm.
2: Listen, I mean, I, I agree that, but first of all, I'm not, not actually against self-driving cars personally, okay. um, but I'm just, I just want to make the point that there's nothing inevitable about political choices. Um, and it, for us to, to ever say that, I want, to ask, I want us to examine that.
1: Well, and I think because it absolves yourself of responsibility.
2: That's right. And I think that, thank you for saying it that way, because I think that is really, really what's going on in many of the situations where you see algorithms, especially flawed algorithms, they are being they're replacing human processes human decision-making processes that are difficult and people love getting out of those hard decisions and they love replacing them with algorithms and then saying oh it's inevitable that we use this machine learning algorithm because look how efficient it is oh and by the way it has externalities and it's ruining things for people but it's an algorithm so what can you do shrug
1: yeah causing harm is not an inevitability and true you know Creating more problems than you solve is not an inevitability. And neither exactly. is
0: losing control of it, right? I mean, this is the other fear that people have: is that oh, we'll it'll be we'll be out of control, you know. And you know, if you if you write bad software, you lose control of it. That that we know, but that's not inevitable,
2: right? I mean, so part of it is that we just simply don't test it for um, if it's working. <laughs> so that's mm. the science, putting in science of the data science, like, hey, is this hiring algorithm legal? that question doesn't get asked and doesn't get answered in the world of HR analytics um, very often anyway, as far as my experience has gone. So that's, that's a problem, but I, I, I just, I'll just say one more time. I know you guys are very pro technology, and so am I, really. And I, I think we can do a lot better for most of the algorithms I talk about. But there's some of the algorithms that I talk about that I'm like, this is not a problem we can solve with technology. Right. And can, I, can, I, can I get an amen? Can I like amen?
1: Yeah, amen. <laughs> technology is not going to save you. I'm for humanity before I'm for technology. Technology yes,
2: should technology, be a tool
0: to aid our humanity.
2: Thank you. That's what, I, that's what I was getting at. You said it better.
1: Yeah. Well, hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is right now. Must be that happy time again.
0: Yeah. It's time for me to expose my algorithm for writing a mid-show joke. Here Ooh. we go. Step one. Ooh. Listen to what the guest is saying. Step two. Identify words or phrases that can be turned into a joke. Step three. Answer an email. Step four. Daydream about lunch all the way up to the break. Step five. Open my mouth and hope what comes out is funny. <laughs> Step six: Send Richard a hundred dollars by PayPal for laughing.
2: Wait, do I get a hundred dollars? As far as I know, I don't get anybody.)
0: <laughs> it's like actually it. time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Dev Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM and state controllers. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. You can check it out, test it for free on GitHub. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is William Heinerman. Congratulations, William. Yeah. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for William. William just won the D Experience subscription. That's a big pile of awesome from our friends over at DevExpress just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And Kathy, it's your turn. If you had five thousand dollars to spend on technology today, what would you buy?
2: Here's what I would do. I would pay someone to build a uh, build a machine that makes me Manhattan's a Manhattan nice. maker. Yeah, it's like I have a co- automatic coffee maker, and it mm. honestly, I. I should thank that coffee maker. It's like, it, it made me a blogger. It made me a successful blogger because every morning I would just press a button and it would just make me coffee. And that's all I needed for my blog, which it eventually turned into a, a writer. And I wrote my book basically because of my coffee machine. And I'm just like, now I have to have my second life as a, as a floozy. And <laughs> I need, I need, for that, I need an automatic Manhattan maker.
0: Uh, now, what bourbon would you use in your Manhattan?
2: Oh, that's a really tough question. I used to I used to use bullet bourbon mm. um, pretty, like, religiously. But then I heard they had some weird, like, political prob- like political stances that I did not like. So, mm-hmm. I- I'm really in between bourbons. If you have any suggestions.
1: Uh, we both have a soft spot for Makers, Mark. We do. And Makers oh, 46. Oh, dude. I mean, that
2: stuff is really good. But yeah, I don't no, even we've,
1: know. We've toured their distilleries. One of those distillery tours where we came out the other side liking the company even more yeah. after spending really? time with them. Yeah. Yep. They're exactly what you want out of a bourbon maker. It's a small family run, two lines, just like it was everything about it was working. And
2: it
0: happens to be delicious.
1: Yeah.
2: It really is delicious. Yeah. I'm just wondering if it's kind of pricey.
1: Eh, it's a middling, if you can afford a bullet uniform, Mark.
2: Really? Okay. Yeah, I'm I think in. So.
1: It's not outrageous stuff.
2: You guys should get $100 from Maker's Mark. Uh, yeah, we should.
1: Uh, I just posted a picture of my cu- – I, dude, I, you didn't see this on Twitter. I posted – I found the bottle from 2011 Codemash. Oh, we you did. We have a custom-labeled bottle of Maker's Mark with our names on it from 2011, a conference where, you know, the Maker's Mark folks uh, had friends and they, they sent us bottles. So, it was yeah. a gift. Now, one suggestion I would have if you actually want ready-made uh, – uh, Manhattan's, is uh, go the perfect route, so half sweet, half dry, and get a small oak barrel that you can make up a batch, like uh, half a gallon of uh, Manhattan's in advance. And as they sit in the barrel, they actually get better. And then all you got to do is turn the tap, drop in a little lemon peel, couple of dashes of Angostura, you're good to go.
2: Dude, I, I did not no idea that I brought this fantasy <laughs> to the right spot.
1: Oh no, was- you are you are amongst your people, that's Kathy. Right. <laughs> Jeez, if you're going to talk you know about what? bourbon, that's the rest of the show.
2: Right, Carl and Roger, I want you to come over to my house and drink bourbon with me, and we can have like another podcast about bourbon. Yes, while, that while sounds good. Here. And by the way. I should tell you that, like, I'm looking across the room at my table, my bourbon table, which I have, like, 17 different bourbons on it. Everybody should and have a bourbon table. Yes. <laughs> and it's basically, it's like a shrine to my bluegrass band. So, that <laughs> that is what you're... Wait, you, wait, wait, wait.
0: wait. Whoa, are. whoa, whoa. Your bluegrass band?
2: That's right, my friend. I'm a bluegrass musician. I play the fiddle and drink a lot of bourbon. <laughs>
0: Wow. What we have, have so much lives. to talk about besides <laughs> you guys algorithms. Need
2: to come the <laughs> over, okay?
0: <laughs> uh, let me get my shoes. Yeah, get a go. Get your shoes. <laughs> I, I pl- also play with some bluegrass friends, mostly in my living room, but uh, but I, I am all totally into that music.
2: Really? Awesome. Yeah, usually the, the practice is in my living room, although we have a kind of standing gig down in the West Village, which is Great. awesome.
1: I mostly pour drinks, but I'm good at it.
2: (laughs) You're you're in, man. We need the bartender. And I can can
1: give you 15 minutes on virtually
0: every bourbon you've heard of. There you go. You want a machine that (laughs) makes Manhattans? Richard is the machine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Richard, I've got $5,000 for you.
1: There you go. I make make you a batch of barrel-aged, perfect Manhattans. That's can be amazing. done for far less than five grand. For five grand, we could probably distill our own bourbon.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, Carl, what do you play?
1: I, I'm a guitar player and singer.
2: Are you a flat picker? Uh-huh. We we just so happen we have a space for the flat picker in a band. So just wow. Saying. New Literally York is only two
1: hours for me. <laughs> there you go. I think you guys just got a new band going. I'm on the West Coast, so it's a bit further for me. But I'll come down for a drink.
2: Cool. Do yeah, it. you can Please.
1: see my non acoustic, mostly non
0: acoustic music at franklinbrothersband.com. There's a lot of YouTube videos up there, but you'll get an idea. Awesome. Okay, we were talking about algorithms. Algorithms? Algorithms?
1: <laughs> algorithms. Uh, how not to tell a joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got to dive back into this. That's not hard to do because there's plenty more to talk about. I honestly wonder if. The best thing we can do with the data we've collected so far is analyze it for the biases in the data.
2: Well, OK, so there's a, actually a lot of scholarship coming out about this, and mm-hmm. I was really happy to see um, I went to this what's called the FAT Conference, Fairness and Accountability and Transparency in you know Machine Learning and Algorithms. That happened at NYU Law School just this last weekend. And there's sort of all these different approaches being taken around this. So there's some people that say, oh, we should do pre-processing, which means like basically take the, the bias out of the data before we stick it into an algorithm to train it. Other people say we should do post-processing, which is like, yeah, use the whatever data you have. But then once the black box has been built, um, you know, adjust adjust the results because, you know, there's bias in the, in the answers and the scoring systems. Um, there, you know, there's other interventions as well, um, mm-hmm. that happen in, in somewhere in the middle. There's lots of different approaches. All of them are, you know, being developed. Some of them work pretty well. Some of them don't. One thing that's a little bit interesting though, is, um, you know, a, a typical pre-processing thing that people do now, Okay, which doesn't work is, is just say, oh, well, we're race blind. We don't use race right. so As, our da- algorithm- as, a, as, as a, an axis. Yeah, we don't use it as an attribute in training. Mm-hmm. Um, and they think that that's sort of getting them out of trouble. But of course it isn't because, you know, if you don't use race, but you do use zip code, that's a proxy for race in our segregated sure. society. Yeah. Um, so you're still going to be in trouble. And so then, um, so then the question is, well, how do we get rid of race as an attribute from the data period? Um, and then the answer is, well, maybe you decorrelate all your attributes from this one special attribute race and so there's methods to do that which basically amount to principal component analysis a so you, for the nerdy people among your listeners um uh, but believe it or not that doesn't necessarily really solve the racial bias problem either mm-hmm. um and part of that is because you know it's not necessarily a linear relationship um proxies and the and the, the um depending on the algorithm you use it might not be a linear algorithm so you still might be getting at sort of weird relationships that affect race some people people of some races more than others and it might be as simple as like we have worse data on certain races than we have on Mm. others um there was this really interesting paper written by maurice hart who was at google research but now is at berkeley um and others um there was an appendix that did this really interesting thing where it took it took a bunch of data from fico scores by race Right. And it had this sort of like a um, sort of premise, like you are a comp, you're a, a loan company, like a, say an online lender. Mm-hmm. And you want to figure out how to distribute your loans to make profit um, and um, to be fair. Yeah. Um, and to not have racial bias. So to be fair in some way. And, and the first point they made was it's, there's actually no well defined definition of fairness racial fairness. Yeah. So what they actually did was, yeah. So they had five different definitions. Um, and the first one was no constraint whatsoever. So in other words, like you don't have to be fair. Don't think about it. Just maximize profit. And then the other four were various different definitions of race of racial fairness that people have, some people have advocated for. And one of them was like, make sure the number of the percentage of non defaulters is the same overall races. And some of them were like, make sure that the cutoff, your FICO score cutoff. So above which you get the loan below, which you don't get the loan is the same for all races or make sure that it, the cutoff, um, for both non-defaulting and defaulting people is, um, the same proportion in both sides, uh, for all races. And so there's different definitions of fairness and you could like make the argument for one or the other. Um, and they just did them all. And what, one of the things that I found really interesting was, and this shouldn't be so surprising, but, um, that, they looked at the f- the actual profit um, of your business depending on which choice you took, and saw how much the fairness constraint cut into your profit depending wow. on which fairness constraint you you took. Now, clearly, if you don't have a fairness constraint, you're going to maximize profit, and if you do have a fairness constraint, you're gonna, you're not. So that was obvious, but they sort mm-hmm. of like really di- explicitly measured how much money you'd you'd stand to lose depending on your definition of fairness and i think it's a you know it's an interesting and i'm glad they worked it out but i think it's just also kind of kind of a deep thing because i think what it really is is speaking to is this kind of libertarian argument which i have come across so many times i can't even tell you first what working at the hedge fund, but just because I wrote this book and talk about this stuff, mm-hmm. that somehow the free market is going to solve racism, right. right? Like if we just let people maximize profit, um, you know, then racism will be going, will go away because this is like a lost business opportunity. Um, it's just simply not
0: right. And that's not the only thing that they say will go away. I mean, uh, free markets apparently can fix everything from, you know, cancer to you name it.
2: Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I'll just say one last thing, which is that one one of the major reasons that um the thresholds are different depending on um for the different races, depending on all these different conditions, is that the the data quality is worse for non whites. Um right. For this FICO, this FICO scoring stuff, so like they simply just have less and less uh, appropriate data for for non whites in in the score, credit scoring situation by the way that sort of reminds me of another example i thought would be useful to bring up um which there was a new york times article about it like i think last week about facial recognition software working much much better for white people and for men than for black people and in particular for black women um and i saw a talk this weekend at this conference i just mentioned um by the one of the authors of that her name is joy bugliamani i think her last name is um and it was really fascinating in, in part because I, it's just hard for me to believe that these big companies that had built these facial recognition software hadn't tested this um, and hadn't fixed yeah. it and hadn't addressed the fact that it was like 99 point something accurate for white men and like 70 per, or 65% accurate for black women. It was like Man. really, really bad. Wow, Terrible. Um, so number one, why hadn't they asked themselves this question? But then she also like, notified the four big companies one of them was chinese one of them i think was ibm one of them i think was google and there was a fourth i can't remember um and only ibm responded and ibm was like we uh we redid your results so we found the same results and now we've fixed our algorithm and here are the here's the performance of the new algorithm and it works just really really well for all of those four categories um so i think my the thing i keep on the lesson I keep learning from these experiences, because it's not the first time this has happened, it's like the fourth time this has happened, is that these big companies still don't get it. They still don't ask these important questions, and most of them still don't think they have to.
1: Interesting. The IBM clearly just demonstrated it's solvable. You just have to look.
2: You have to focus on it. It has to yeah. matter to you. And as soon as it matters to you, you can solve it. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. So I, I, it is actually, at the end of the day, a pretty uplifting Story in the sense that like, oh, IBM was like, this is important. Let's do let's deal with this. And they Mm -hmm. did. And then that can happen a lot more than it does. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And true. What is it about this latest wave of technology that has made this situation? I've got to presume there's been biases in data and problems with this for decades. Why is it coming to a head now?
2: Well, I mean, we, we haven't had this much data. Um, until now, we haven't had all of our bureaucratic decision making points turn into algorithms until now. I mean, there's a lot of new things that are happening now mm-hmm. Um that and it's the first generation of this technology and it sucks. I mean, it basically just sucks. <laughs> We're making yeah. all of the mistakes. Yeah, it's making all the mistakes. I feel like it's it's I'm sure that the the original automobile sucked but people were super happy about them because they were like not, they didn't need horses. You if know? you
1: want to have some fun, I don't know if you've ever considered this, go to a like antique car show and go through like the starting process of the Model T Ford. Yeah. Hmm, you'll love it because this was the car that broke open the automobile, right? This was the car, the everyman car. Yeah. If you don't follow the procedure correctly in starting a Model T Ford ma- manually, it will break your arm. Wow <laughs> Like I'm not kidding you It will break your arm That thing's got enough torque in it And you're cranking it If you do it wrong It will seriously harm you Are you mean when you're cranking it to start up Yes Wow Like it It, it was not a trivial process To operate a car at that t- time Oh and that throttle was hilarious Because it was a little slider Right um, you, you're, you're settling of the pedals and so forth What you think of a car today That just didn't exist in the, in the teens Yeah You know that's, But you're, you're completely right I mean, machine learning has been around for a while, but I think the culmination of the cloud and the huge amounts of data now available, largely, I think, due to social media, have brought it to this interesting point where now we really have to decide what we're going to do with this and try and do things right.
2: Right. Well, the reason I brought up the car thing is that I'm just absolutely convinced that when cars first came out, they were super duper dangerous and people died all the time. and And then we were like, wait, we don't actually have to die this often. Um, we should make cars safer and yeah. then like, you know, uh, pass a hundred, a hundred years later, like Ralph Nader forced us to wear seatbelts, you know? Yep, right. But I'm just saying, like, they, they sucked, but they were so super exciting. And we decided, like, we're going to make this better, be, better because it's going to be worth it. And I think the thing with algorithms now is they suck and it's not quite as obvious how they suck mm-hmm. because a lot of them are sucking in silent ways where there's nobody, like, nobody Runs into a tree on a, on, and on a public road. So we can't see it. Right. Um, but they still suck and we still have to figure those things out, those accidents, those, you know, collisions in order to figure out what, how to make things safer. And so that's what the process that we should be engaged in is saying, where are the failures? Is this fit fa- for whom does this algorithm fail? Does it fail for more for women than for men? Does it fail more for blacks than for whites? Does it fail more for people with disabilities than people without disabilities? Mm-hmm. And how can we make them safer? Especially, and, and by the way, like, you know, I don't care about most algorithms, but algorithms that matter a lot to people, like that's when you have to really watch out because then, sure. the, then the failures really are possibly if not um, destroying someone's life, at least you know diluting their their life in some meaningful way, and like mm-hmm. that's what we have to watch out for.
1: Well, no, OLAP was just an internal tool we used for our business to try and you know make more money off of from certain customers, if we got it wrong, we only hurt our business. Now the exactly. machine learning is affecting policing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the scope is very different.
2: Or people getting jobs. You know, right. there was or, this or guy. Or loans. I, 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 But I talked to um a, a guy whose son got red-lighted on a personality test, and then he got red-lighted on six other personality tests because they were actually all the same test. Right. But each of them represented a chain store in Atlanta, Georgia. So he was sort of blocked out of basically all chain store jobs, which, you know, they're not the best jobs, but he couldn't get any of them you know and not only could he not get out of any of them but judging from what he said about the the questions they were ripped off directly from a uh, mental health assessment that he recognized because he'd been treated for bipolar disorder in the hospital. So it was actually sort of simultaneously, this one test was simultaneously barring an entire class of citizens illegally, I might add Mm. from, uh, from jobs, from employment. And that's, you know, illegal because the Americans with disability act made that illegal, but Mm. that's exactly what the ADA was meant to prevent. So you had this Mm. like one algorithm scaled up so massively that it was really blocking people from employment in a big way. And so that, that is that's the kind of thing you really worry about,
0: well, and you know the other problem, of course, is that it it's so invisible, right? It seems like the yes. perfect way to commit a crime against a whole class of people is is because nobody understands it. You can't just like bring the code into a judge and say see
2: yep it's in fact i i was um I was talking to the 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 regulators over at the e e o c That are in charge of investigating this, you know, and I was explaining to them about how algorithms work because, yeah, as you might imagine, number one, federal regulators don't have that much extra money at this moment uh, to look into this stuff. But number two, they don't already know this stuff. How would they? Right. Right? This is an entirely new technology um, that they are not prepared to interrogate. They know how to interrogate a human process, but they don't know how to interrogate an automated process.
1: And it has happened quickly. Yeah. The
0: thing they have to do is hire a, a wide range of developers to say, all right, you need have access to this code. These are the questions we want answered about this code. Is it doing this? Is it doing that? You know, and then have yeah. that corroborated. But, but, you know, that's, that's it's computer science. That's just debugging, really.
2: Well. I mean it's computer science but it's also law right and it's right. also sociology and there's insight and, and psychotherapy there's all sorts of things going on here which mm. makes it extra difficult for any one group of people to um to approach which is why this accountability of algorithm movement really isn't simply computer science right it's it's people from policy from law from yeah. social sciences and from computer science all trying to figure out how to work together to solve these questions <laughs>
1: Um, we're we're getting low on time here, Kathy, and I really want to give people direction to go in. You you're starting to experiment with this technology. You want to do the right things. How do you get started?
2: I think um, I'm trying to develop this concept of an ethical matrix, and it, mm-hmm. it's a visual thing. But I'm going to just describe it really quickly because I think it's useful and it's pretty simple. The idea is you. It's not a. It's not a like a, a matrix of numbers. It's a matrix of of. Considerations really. So the rows of the matrix correspond to the stakeholders in the, that of the algorithm you're about to use. So the stakeholders could be, um, if it's a hiring algorithm, it's like the people applying for the job, the people that are rejected, the people that are accepted, um, the company who wants to hire. Um, the regulators like the EEOC um, and possibly you can think of, or maybe th- get another row for the people that built the algorithm mm-hmm. um, because that often is a third party. Um, and then the columns are the things that they care about or, or, or worry about. So their concerns. So the first one will be like fairness. Uh, second one will be efficiency. Third one will be explicability or whatever those things are. And then within each cell. So now you have the columns and you have the rows. You think What's the worst case scenario here? Right. Um, and the worst is the worst case scenario illegal? Is it denying someone a constitutional right or a human right? What mm-hmm. is? What could go wrong? And you think about it for each stakeholder and each concern, and that will give you somehow like a a landscape to start wonder. It's to to sort of, and it depends entirely on context. To be clear, like a given algorithm could could be evil or good depending on the context. So it has, you have to choose an algorithm and a context and build this ethical matrix and then decide. If you have a real problem on your hand and then that will lead you, it doesn't solve the problem. It just leads to you to focus on what the real big problems are. And then you start have to ask questions like how often will this really happen? If this this terrible thing might happen, what's the likelihood it will happen and how often will it happen and to whom will it happen? Hmm. And those, that's when you really start um, asking the right questions.
1: Yeah. This sounds an awful lot like working through a security matrix, you know, same sort of thing of risk to uh, to opportunity and just, and probability but uh it's you just got to think about it yeah
2: i didn't know there was such a thing as a security matrix
1: hmm. yeah well you know if you if you want to be that paranoid get your tinfoil hat there's a whole business sort. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well i guess that's my my role over here and, hey it's and the tinfoil hat a-
1: machine learning person that pours manhattans <laughs>
2: <That's me. laughs> yes the in a fiddler in a bluegrass band. Yeah, if you're right. going
1: to wear a hat like that, you need a drink. You definitely need some bourbon.
2: <laughs> <laughs> At least one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I can't explain how amazing this was.
2: Thank you, guys. And I really do want to see you um, in my living room with uh, with your bluegrass instruments and your Manhattans sometime I soon. We will
1: that talk. that could be arranged. Offline,
0: absolutely. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Wonderful. Thanks All for right. having me. All right. Thank you. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on .Net Rocks. .Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pop Studios Now go write some code. See you next time.
1: Got transmitter bands by the FCC.
0: Yes, I'm a dark boy. Life is hard.